In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor, normally in Brussels, currently in Derry. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's London correspondent, back in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and in London. This week, the Tories went to Manchester, still threatening to trigger Article 16. European Commission Vice President Maros Shevchovic zoomed into Dublin, dropping broad hints about how the EU will respond to the UK's command paper. There were happier noises in Belfast after a meeting between the Taoiseach and DUP leader Geoffrey Donaldson. Later we'll hear from the UUP leader Doug Beattie on how his party's ploughing its own furrow. And we'll hear a bit more on what the EU's response to the UK command paper will and won't propose. OK, Tony, we'll be back to you shortly on that. But first, Sean, let's go back to that Tory conference we mentioned at the start of the introduction. You were there you, for longer than the Tory party conference. You were there the preceding weekend, soaking up the atmosphere in, in Manchester and then there for the Tory party conference. In terms of Brexit being on the agenda, it was very much a footnote to the whole thing. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, they got it out of the way uh, early on at an ungentlemanly hour, 10 past nine on a Monday morning. Um, really not terribly suitable for journalists like myself uh, or indeed many other people because the Tory party is the party that likes the party and uh, certainly the um, Midlands Hotel and surrounding hostelries were uh, pretty much full every night um, as super spreader events go. It was most convivial, I have to say. Uh, however, there we were at 10 past nine on Monday morning, uh, along with all the uh, diplomats, particularly the uh, big battalions from the EU mission and the Irish mission, a uh, few other missions as well, all keen uh, to hear what Lord Frost had to say. Uh, probably more keen than the members of the party, uh, who weren't there in great numbers, but did uh, come along to other fringe events uh, later on in the week. No real surprises in uh, what uh, Lord Frost had to say in his 10-minute formal uh, conference speech, uh, but he did uh, tend to uh, wax a bit more lyrical, I guess, uh, in some of the uh, fringe events that he was involved in, uh, one of which we, we did get along to, another one we couldn't because... Uh, uh, there's just not enough hours in the day uh, to do the day job and get around to all the very, very, very many uh, events, uh, very many interesting events if you're a political wonk uh, that happen at these uh, political conferences in the UK. Uh, they tend to have about seven or eight different things going on at the same time in any given hour of the day and uh, trying to get around to all of them is simply impossible. You do have to pick and mix. But uh, Lord Frost, uh, he uh, made an appearance uh, firstly, as part of a panel group, but more interesting, I thought, uh, just a one-on-one -on -one interview for an hour at the Centre for Policy Studies. And uh, we're going to play a little bit uh, of uh, an extract from that uh, because they introduced him to polite applause. Uh, they said who he was, what he did, 
and then they went straight into the first question and we're going to play it straight and note the audience reaction to it as well. Um, when are we declaring Article 16? <laughs> uh, when we need to, I think, is the, the answer. We, um, you know, we're, we're at a crunch point um, in the next month or so. We have not yet had a proper answer from the EU to the proposals we've put down on Northern Ireland. Hopefully that will come soon. We then need some proper talks with them, some proper intensive talks to see if we can bridge the gap, which I've no doubt will be quite a big gap at first. Um, I will try my best to get an agreement that uh, meets what we need in those few weeks, but if we can't, then we will be in Article 16 territory. Uh, I would guess, you know, crunch point comes at some point next month. This is something that can't wait very long. We need to bring stability to Northern Ireland. We need to find solutions that are going to last. We did our best in 2019, but, but clearly it didn't quite work. And now we've got to do the job again and bring stability uh, in a way that lasts. So look, straight in there, it's Article 16 and triggering Article 16 and when, and, and really he's set out the timeline uh, for us there in, in a pretty open way uh, that had been hinted at uh, over the past uh, week or so, uh, and which many people had, had anticipated in terms of, of his counterparts on the EU side, uh, which is, yes, they're going to get stuck into negotiations once they see uh, the uh, what the European Commission put down on paper. I mean, they've talked about there's been no response from the European Commission or no proper response from the European Commission. That's because they haven't had anything uh, as a formal document. But we know from a previous form here that uh, they do get uh, communications back and forth. There's been regular meetings uh, at official level taking place since the summertime uh, about what the EU might think about the British command paper, all kinds of ideas being floated around the place. Uh, but they haven't had a formal response written down yet, and that's what we're going to uh, expect in the coming days. And once they see that, well, they will get into uh, negotiations. But Lord Frost expecting the gap between the two sides to be pretty wide at the start. Then it's a question of narrowing it down, and then it's a question of do you need to use Article 16 or not? Uh, if you do, where does it take you? It's a good question. I mean, Article 16 is a fairly precise mechanism you have to have a particular issue that you're complaining about, and then it sets up another month of intensive negotiations. So it's not quite the nuclear weapon that I suspect some of the people clapping it wildly in the audience there uh, think it is. Nevertheless, um, they seem to be up for a fight and seem to like the idea uh, of using that particular article. No expectation on the European side, by the way, that it will be used this side of the COP26 uh, meeting. Uh, which the UK is hosting for the first 12 days, I think it is, of November. Right. They had enough uh, That would not be a good time to use because... the G7 meeting the last time. Yeah, but you'll have all the, the, the great and good of the world descending on Glasgow and there will be simply too much political bandwidth being expended on dealing with a very, very major event uh, unless they want to try and <laughs> sneak in Article 16 and use uh, the COP as uh, cover for it. But, you know, if you're going to uh, make a dramatic gesture like using Article 16, 
then uh, why not do it in the full um, glare of the spotlight when all the other actors have sure. left the stage and you can have it all to yourself. Now, speaking of Article 16, we know from earlier in the year the EU had threatened very briefly to use Article 16 uh, in the dispute that they were having with the uh, British over vaccine supplies. That has come back to haunt the EU many times um, during the year. And Lord Frost, uh, in his uh, interview uh, with the Centre for Policy Studies, again picked up on that uh, very issue and said that uh, the EU uh, has lost uh, effectively the moral high ground over Article 16 and its uses as a result. Here's what he had to say. Uh, we uh, came to what we thought was a reasonable balance of interests for, for Northern Ireland. Obviously, uh, we'd had our negotiating hands sort of cut away uh, in Parliament. So we did our best. We thought it was a reasonable balance. We thought it would last. It hasn't lasted. And I think the, the EU's heavy-handed uh, behaviour, their attempt to put a a sort of hard border um, at the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland for vaccines purposes it sort of destroyed the moral integrity, I think, of the, the protocol at that point. And thereafter, we've been in a different world. And um, that's a pity, but that's, that's where it is. And we now got to do the job. David Frost asserting there, Sean, that the EU had lost the moral in uh, integrity. That's presumably the repast to the EU saying there's been a loss of trust. But it wasn't the only insight he gave. There was... Uh, also an insight into the negotiating modus operandi that he had to retrain his team in. Yeah, this was really interesting. I, I found uh, that uh, he said British diplomats are too nice uh, and they don't push the points forcibly. So he organised a kind of a frosty boot camp to uh, discipline his team into being much more tough and stern in their dealings with the EU. And so I think uh, we have some kind of an insight into what uh, poor old Mara Shevchevich and his team uh, are going to be facing in the weeks ahead. Uh, here's what he had to say about preparing them for the last uh, set of negotiations. I think the problem for our, too many of our negotiators is they're, they're sort of too nice. It's not that they're, you know, they're trying to do different things. I think you know, too often we just want to be liked and we don't push points. And I think that's kind of possibly it's a British kind of reflex a bit. Um, nobody's ever said that about me in this job and um, I, I think uh, you know we had to drill our negotiating team a lot uh, in 2020 when they when everyone first got together precisely so that people exhibited the right behaviors people pushed back people you know presented points hard they didn't kind of immediately uh, sort of respond to points others made and so on and that was you know we made a conscious effort to make this happen because it was a bit countercultural. Funny you should say that because I was speaking to a British official during the week striking a slightly softer tone than David Frost they said never say never but it's there about triggering article 16. Not really talking about the triggering of it being imminent what would make it imminent is if the EU took a take it or leave it position when they present their proposals next week in answer to what the UK uh, had demanded in, in the command paper. Now, interestingly, that use of words, take it or leave it, Mara Shevchevich was at the Institute of International and European Affairs in Dublin during the week. He did a Zoom call in. There was a lot of people on the line. Quite an attentive audience to what Mara Shevchevich had to say because obviously people were expecting a response to what was said at the Tory party conference. I suppose it'd be worth hearing what he had to say there 
on the take it or leave it point? The proposals which we are uh, putting on uh, uh, the, the table, hopefully next week, we do not treat them as a take it or leave it proposals. We are just showing that this is the way how we can solve the practical issues which, which are on the table. So we will definitely go uh, through them with our uh, UK partners. And I know that what is very important for them is in the end uh, to arrive uh, at uh, the, the joint solutions and the joint decisions. And I respect that. I respect that what I need is uh, uh, to uh, be uh, clearly in, in a room with our UK partner, uh, partners when there will be the same constructiveness demonstrated from, from, from their side. Uh, what I hear uh, a lot uh, from the Lord was this, that, uh, uh, that, uh, uh, that I should get uh, uh, from my comfort zone, and I'm telling him the same. We both should get from our comfort zone if we want uh, uh, to resolve these issues. And I think that uh, we, are, we are pretty much doing that by really looking at all the, all the, all the issues and practicalities uh, uh, which uh, we know we need, uh, uh, we need to resolve. Sean, just listening to Mara Shevchevich there, it's all about the practicalities. The British, British official I was speaking to, it was all about the practicalities as well. There wasn't a lot about the bigger issues of sovereignty or anything else. There was a, a sense really that if we can minimise the disruption to normal life in Northern Ireland, we'll have gone a long way along the road to making the Northern Irish protocol a bit more palatable. I mean... How hard will issues like, say, for example, the European Court of Justice be to square in the coming months? I mean, I think we're to have intensive negotiations over October and November with a view to concluding some kind of final position early next year between the UK and the EU. But that issue, has it slightly gone away or is it still very much to the fore from what you were hearing from David Frost? Let's wind it back slightly to that uh, command paper, uh, that is to say a government paper published by command of Her Majesty. It's an old form of words for you know, publishing just a government paper or a communication, as the European Commission would call them. I know the term command paper uh, rankles with a few uh, people uh, outside of Britain. It's just an archaic term. It's not that they're commanding us to do anything. Um, but yeah, in that command paper, most of it was about the practicalities uh, of uh, trade and, and movement of goods and uh, checks on uh, animals and plant products. It wasn't so much about issues of sovereignty. So if they stick to what they were saying in the uh, white paper, then yes, you can see uh, plenty of scope for technical fixes and Brussels is actually rather good at doing technical fixes. If it starts to get down to the issue of the question of the uh, European Court of Justice, then you are on much trickier ground and it's going to be a lot more uh, hard uh, to um, fudge things away because the European side is certainly not going to be in the mood for allowing anybody else to interpret European law. And I think even Lord Frost himself has acknowledged that point. Uh, issues of European law can only be interpreted by the European Court what he is looking for, though, is to have uh, an arrangement which he says is more like other uh, 
trade uh, agreements where the two, and indeed the um, future relationship agreement, uh, the trade and cooperation agreement, where the two sides jointly work together to try and find solutions to problems uh, that come up. uh, And if they can't, it goes to international arbitration, um, which is the way it goes with most international trade uh, treaties. But this isn't just another international trade treaty. This is a unique uh, set of arrangements where by the European Union has subcontracted responsibility for the management of part of the external frontier of the Union to a third country. It's never done that before. And so there is a, a big amount of uh, weariness, weariness on the uh, EU side about anything that might weaken uh, that uh, external frontier control. Now, the British side counter and say, look, we've uh, agreed basically to having a border down the Irish Sea, a trade border between different parts of our uh, single uh, United Kingdom. Uh, but the EU side are saying, well, we've agreed that to subcontract part of our customs arrangements to another country, a third country, a country outside of the European Union. So both parties have gone out on a limb, have done something new, different, unique, and tinkering with that now or changing it now uh, could become quite problematic. Right. Well, I mean, let's on, on that subject, was the, the, in, interestingly enough, a, a British official was able to say, well, you know, it's not, it's, it didn't mention really the sovereignty principle. It was about, you know, if you go down the, the presence of the ECJ and overseeing single market rules in Northern Ireland means everything goes down a legalistic route which is why they want the reference gone as, as opposed to the higher principle. But it's there, as you say, in the command paper. And Mara Shevchevich addressed this in his address to the IIEA in Dublin. And it seems, from what he's saying, to be very much an EU red line. Again, coming back to my, my visit uh, to, to, to uh, Northern Ireland, I spent there, I would say, two full days of uh, discussing the, the practical issues with uh, as I described earlier, with lots of lots of uh, um, stakeholders coming from different different walks of life, the the ECJs was mentioned once in this two days discussion because, and it was not from business community, it was not from civic society, and it was mentioned once, ninety nine point nine percent of time, and the and 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 the questions and the problems I heard being coming from that. Uh, categories uh, which I described uh, before, trade, SPS, uh, medicines, uh, customs, uh, Northern Irish stakeholders being uh, uh, properly heard uh, uh, by the European counterparts. 99.9% of time and 99.9% of questions been coming from, 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 these, uh, from, these, uh, from these categories. So this is some kind of late addition on something which we uh, agreed uh, upon very, very clearly when we've been signing on withdrawal agreement and uh, uh, on, uh, the, on the, the protocol. And uh, therefore, if you are talking about the, the, the constructive uh, solutions to the, to the uh, practical problems, uh, uh, I think that doing away with the European Court of Justice is uh, not one of them. And to be quite honest, I find it hard to see how Northern uh, Ireland uh, would stay or would keep the access uh, to the uh, single market without oversight of the uh, European 
uh, court of justice. Do we want to deprive the people of Northern Ireland for this tremendous opportunity, this huge advantage? Do we want to do that? So uh, that's the best answer I can give you at, uh, at, at this stage. So let's think very, very carefully what we are putting on the table and what kind of price tag this might have for the businesses and for the people in Northern Ireland. So that was the one bit of Mara Shevchevich's speech in the IIEA that sounded more uncompromising than the rest of the rather emollient things he had to say about trying to reach practical solutions in order to make the Northern Ireland Protocol work. From what he was saying, and I think from what uh, the Taoiseach was saying to Geoffrey Donaldson, the DUP leader up in Belfast today, Friday, as we record this, Geoffrey Donaldson seems to appreciate that there has been a softening of the tone and took the opportunity not only to acknowledge that, but also to claim credit for it as well. I welcome the change in tone. I welcome the change in the language being used. Um, People are now solution focused. Uh, They're now talking about negotiations. All of these things were off the table. Uh, even three months ago, and I think that our actions have brought a sharper focus uh, on the need to find a solution that removes the Irish Sea border and restores Northern Ireland's place within the UK internal market. So that was the DUP leader, Geoffrey Donaldson, speaking there. Sean, you caught up with the UUP leader going back to the Tory conference. He was there speaking alongside other unionist leaders. Yeah, that was a, a rather interesting gathering. Um, it happened to take place in the same uh, room in the Manchester City Art Gallery where a few days previously the uh, Irish Consulate General, the new Consulate General in Manchester held a reception for the Irish community. Uh, rather different uh, audience uh, at this one where we had uh, the aforementioned uh, Jeffrey Donaldson and Jim Allister uh, of the traditional unionist voice uh, and um, Doug Beattie as you say of the Ulster Unionist Party there along with um, the former Labour MP Kate Hoey and uh, Lord David Trimble uh, who uh, made a a rare uh, public appearance uh, also uh, condemning uh, the uh, the protocol. Now, Doug Beatty had made the point, yes, all the unionist parties uh, are opposed to the protocol and they all want to see changes to it, but he stuck out, uh, he said, I'm jumping out of the lanes here because I don't agree with this uh, idea of threatening to pull down the Stormont Assembly. And uh, he also majored in on uh, another point that has not been terribly well uh, ventilated during all this, these talks about the protocol, which have mostly been about trade and a little bit about the European Court of Justice, uh, he makes points about the uh, the democratic deficit, the fact that it's very difficult for a unionist voice or indeed nationalist voices in Northern Ireland, but more particularly the unionist voices, to be heard in Brussels, uh, especially uh, when it comes to the uh, legislative process and the rules and regulations that would apply to Northern Ireland Uh, because of its effective membership of the European single market. Uh, Here's what he told me, firstly, about pulling down Stormont. We we need to make sure that the institutions keep going. We need to keep them on the track for the people of Northern Ireland, for all of those people of Northern Ireland, uh, for those who are on waiting lists, for those who are coming off furlough, for those on universal uh, credit. We need to be working uh, for them. So collapsing of Stormont would be a retrograde step. But absolutely, uh, I want to see the protocol replaced. I've been fighting the protocol uh, for two years. Uh, We've been talking about how to deal with the protocol. We've put forward solutions. We've put forward mitigations for the last two years. So we do need to, to deal with it. But collapsing Stormont is not the way to do it or ruining relationships with people uh, uh, either side of the border is, is not the way to deal with the issue that we have in hand. There is a process ongoing at the moment 
between Lord Frost and the EU. Do you have any confidence in that process and might bring about solutions? Well, well, well here's the whole thing, is that um, as a us Unionist Party leader, uh, as an MLA in Northern Ireland, I'm not even involved in these discussions uh, between Lord Frost uh, and the EU. Uh, we are right outside of it, so therefore in many ways um, what we are saying, what our concerns are, aren't really being, being heard. Uh, if I keep saying to people that the uh, protocol damages the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, and it does, it undermines it, um, uh, and we still have the EU going out and saying the, the, the protocol protects the, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, then you can see there's an absolute disconnect here, and I think people need to understand uh, where we are and why we are in the position that we are. We need to start listening to each other. Uh, we all know what the problem is. Um, uh, we're all looking at it maybe from a different direction, but we know what the problem is. What we need to do is, is find solutions. You mentioned in the meeting that uh, you laid a heavy emphasis on the democratic deficit uh, in this whole protocol process that laws are applying to Northern Ireland that you're not in any way involved in. How important an issue is that for you? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a hugely important issue and I suppose we can look at this now in the first 12 months of, of the protocol being in place and the rules that we are having to take from the European Court of, of Justice, but what's it going to be in five years' time? What's it going to be in ten years' time? We have no idea and we'll have no input to it whatsoever. So that democratic deficit is really uh, important and we need to address that. And I've got to say, as we talk about trade an awful lot, not many people are talking about that democratic deficit. Neither are they talking about that inbuilt instability. That means every four years we're going to have a vote on Articles 5 to 10 uh, of the, the protocol. And, and that instability means that our elections will be focused on a protocol every four year, five years. Um, and foreign direct investment will, will think twice before it comes to Northern Ireland because they know that when they come four years later, they may end up with the different rules they have to adhere to. These are, as you say, very fundamental issues regarding the protocol. Technical tweaks aren't going to do it really for you are they? I mean, in terms of the protocol, you need a, a massive change to it. Well, uh, the, the, it needs to be replaced to something that works. Now, let me be absolutely clear. I don't want any borders north-south uh, or east-west. East um, I don't want um, people um, either side of the border feeling that they've lost out in any, in any shape or form. Uh, what I want is uh, a solution, a treaty between the UK and the EU that fundamentally and firstly protects the Belfast uh, Good Friday Agreement and secondly makes sure that we do not have those borders uh, and that one community or the other does not feel that it's been, been left out or being ignored or it's being marginalised. And if Brussels said, come on over and talk to us about that, would you go? I'll talk to anybody. I think that's one thing about the Ulster Unionist Party is, is we believe in more engagement, uh, not less. So I'm here engaging uh, with other Unionist Party leaders. We're all pointing in the same direction. We are in slightly different uh, lanes, but it's still important to be here and engage. And I will be criticised for that, I guess. But I will engage with um, the Taoiseach on Friday. I, I will engage with anybody else from the European Union, as I am today, uh, with the uh, EU ambassador, um, to put our point across. The last thing we can do is lock ourselves in a room uh, and, and not be heard. We, what we have to do is go out there uh, and let people understand the problems that we're facing. And I thought that point about democratic deficit uh, is something that uh, is quite interesting that the Ulster Unionist Party should be raising that, almost suggesting that you know, perhaps if there was some kind of a formal mechanism uh, by which they could get involved in uh, discussing uh, issues with the uh, European Commission, that might be something that might buy a little bit of time for them. Also, I thought it interesting that he doesn't like this idea of, of having to have a vote every couple of years. Uh, 
on whether they continue with the protocol in Northern Ireland. That was supposedly the uh, the sop to uh, democratic legitimacy that was included when they did the deal uh, originally. Uh, but he thinks it's, uh, it sets up instability. And you can see, I guess, the argument there that if somebody uh, wants to set up a factory with a 10 or 15 year payback time, uh, having votes on whether you're in or out of the uh, single market every four years isn't really very attractive when it comes to uh, the people trying to sell Northern Ireland as an FDI location based on having, as they put it, the best of both worlds, access to the UK single market and the EU, the big EU single market. Mm. And it'll be interesting, we'll be speaking to Tony in a, in a moment about some of the things he's been hearing about what the European Commission might be promosing, proposing in the middle of next week, Wednesday, when they do issue their response to the UK. But one of the things Mara Shevchevich hinted towards uh, in Dublin, as, as we just heard there, is that Northern Irish stakeholders being properly heard by their European counterparts is one of the issues he took on board when he was in Northern Ireland. That would seem, in a way, to be paraphrasing that concern that Doug Beattie has. Yeah, and uh, again, it's interesting. You hear people saying, we've consulted with uh, the people in Northern Ireland. Um, like Mara Shevchevich saying, uh, you know, hardly anybody mentioned uh, from certainly from the business uh, community uh, and civil society. Nobody was talking about the European Court of Justice. Seems to be uh, an issue for the politicians. Um, so, you know, whether we go and look at this as a purely practical uh, arrangement to ease the current protocol arrangements, or whether it would go much further in these negotiations and look at issues like democratic uh, legitimacy like the role of the European Court of Justice. They seem to be the bigger, harder issues. Now, I don't think we should judge the mood of Britain at all by the mood of uh, the audiences at events on the fringes of the Conservative Party conference, uh, but there were certainly a few people uh, in the crowds who would be very much up for a fight uh, with the European Commission uh, and would cheerlead it on. But I suspect most people in Britain uh, wouldn't get terribly hung up on the issues uh, of the European Court of Justice uh, and its role in uh, supervising uh, issues of access to mm. the European single market. I think they'd much rather know uh, about the price of gas or being able to put petrol in their car. But right. we shall see in the weeks ahead. Indeed, indeed. And we're going to talk to Tony about what the European Commission might be proposing in just a moment. So, Tony, we said at the outset we'd be looking ahead to next week with you. Normally, that's a short snippet at the end of this podcast, but you actually have a bit of detail as to what might be coming down the tracks next week when the European Commission gives its formal reply to the UK's asks as laid out in the command paper. Mara Shevchevich, I suppose, as we heard, providing a bit of context as to where the EU's thinking has been on this. It seems to be heavily influenced by the meetings he's had in Northern Ireland in terms of arriving at practical solutions, and that was the buzzword of what he had to say, practical solutions to the problems being experienced by the protocol's implementation. Yeah, so, I mean, we can start this by just going back to the, the big developments in the summer. The UK announced its command paper sweeping changes to the protocol calling for the European Court of Justice to be completely stripped out of the way the protocol works and the European Union giving that quite a subdued response they didn't go mad they they didn't uh, trigger more legal action and in fact they they paused the legal action that was there so there there was 
a definite twin track approach by the EU at, from that moment. And we've discussed this before, but just to remind listeners, one was to try and take the heat out of this whole topic, recognizing, I think, taking the long view and, and a wide, wider lens that ultimately this cannot become another major festering agenda for the EU to have to deal with when, when it's dealing with so many other problems. Um, so the idea was to try and take the heat out of this, avoid public punch-ups with, with London, avoid hard deadlines, uh, and get the thing back into process. In other words, get just technical teams to look at this issue uh, and try and see what, what can be done. And they did look to see you know, where gaps could be bridged between the EU's position and what the UK was asking for in the command paper and where gaps couldn't be bridged. Uh, and of course, the underlying message from Brussels was, we're not renegotiating the protocol, but we will try and really find as many flexibilities as we can uh, to, 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 to make the protocol less onerous. And the second track was to build a bridge, if you like, direct from Brussels into Northern Ireland, uh, not, not one of Boris Johnson's bridges, but more of a uh, a, a metaphorical bridge to civil society, to businesses, and and to the to the political communities on, on both sides. And of course, Mara Shevchevich had a very detailed and fairly busy schedule when he went to Northern Ireland in the early part of September. And the idea was to hear directly from them what the problems are, and to to work up pragmatic solutions uh, that that would still, as far as the EU was concerned, be within the parameters of the uh, the protocol within the framework uh, that it provides now in 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 the wings if you like david frost and the british government were uh, according to officials you know raising the temperature again talking more and more about sovereignty talking more and more about uh, you know the, the our, our country and and foreign judges um and to to to, to the minds of EU officials, this was unnecessarily escalating uh, the temperature and making this into a big sovereignty issue rather than an issue that was about, you know, pragmatic technical fixes to, um, to, to what the protocol asks people to, to, to sign up to. Um, but never, nevertheless, both sides have been talking intensively there there have been quite a few technical meetings between officials on both sides a lot of phone calls actually between david frost and mara shevchevich uh once a week or twice a week um and, and despite what was being said in manchester it was clear that you know there was work uh, being done and while officials i've spoken to have said look the gap is still pretty wide uh, between the, the command paper and what the eu is able to do within the, the eu treaties it, it does look like, you know, the, the EU services, the European Commission divisions that deal with public health, animal health, uh, customs, they were all working hard to try and find ways uh, to, to make this uh, work in a way that would find, uh, you know, political acceptance on both sides of the divide. One of the things that Mara Shevchevic was saying that he seemed to have some level of optimism about having greater access to databases and information looking at where goods might end up crossing from GB into NI and whether they'd ultimately remain in NI or go south uh, into Ireland. What's the what's the situation on, on that? Um, when Mara Shevchevich was speaking at the IIEA, 
he seemed to be happy that at least the infrastructure was being put in place to afford that aspect uh, or to afford that access and he, he seemed to take that as as a cause for hope yes i mean w- one of the complaints the eu has had uh, throughout this process is that the the, the agreement that the UK would give the EU access to its uh, import clearance database, uh, that, that was being held up for an awfully long time. Now, now, the UK were saying there were technical and IT reasons for, for that, and also legal reasons because that there are things within the UK database uh, system when it comes to ports and customs and so on that you know legally they they couldn't show to the EU so it was it was a case of disentangling the the data that was specific to northern ireland and that that was the excuse that was given that, as to why there was a hold up um and and when the UK were saying that there that these checks and controls that were having to be carried out at northern ireland ports were completely you know, disproportionate. They they represented twenty percent of all checks that were happening happening at all EU ports. The European Commission was saying, well, look, we, because you aren't giving us access to the data, then we we can't tell you whether that's true or not. Um, and and so there was a bit of a back and forth dispute as to what you know what exactly the extent of these checks were. And another angle to this is that you know the European Commission, while they they have been trying to find flexibilities. They were acutely concerned that there would be a perception that the EU was simply rolling over under repeated volleys of pressure from London, uh, all the unilateral action, the threats of Article 16. Uh, and there there is a determination to make sure that whatever is on offer next Wednesday when these proposals are put forward to brought to the College of Commissioners on Wednesday, um, that there will be conditions attached and that the UK will finally have to build the infrastructure, provide the databases, provide the logistics to make sure that the protocol in whatever way is it is kind of refashioned or recalibrated, uh, that it will function right. and that, that, that this isn't just another bunch of goodies that the UK will pocket and then come back for more. Right, but as we heard from Mara Shevchevich, he says it's not going to be a take-it-or-leave-it proposal. It's a basis for discussion, and he doesn't really use the word negotiations. It's a basis for discussions on which joint decisions can be made in order to get rid of or mitigate some of the problems that are being encountered with the Northern Ireland Protocol. And, you know, British officials, at least as some that I was speaking to said that, you know, supermarket solutions would take a good chunk of the problems away. That sounds very much like what Mara Shevchevich is talking about, about, you know, the, the practical issues and also internally in Northern Ireland on the political issue. Uh, they were saying that, well, if we can get into serious negotiations about Im- the implementation of the protocol. It'll buy time for the institutions because we've heard Jeffrey Donaldson saying, look, the institutions will come down if we don't get our way on, on the protocol. And there'll be elections next May. There'll be a first minister and deputy first minister appointed. Who knows what way the parties will shake out. There could be quite a bit of political heat. But if we could have some track of negotiations going on in advance of that, then that would do a lot to cool down the political temperature in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I mean, just there, there's a lot to kind of unpack there. But I mean, first of all, the UK made it clear in July that they did not want the Commission to come up with a bunch of proposals on a, on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. 
and um, you know again that could be seen as as part of the the saber rattling or the or the raising of expectations or or rhetoric, and I suppose it was it was an easy point to concede by the commission to say no of course not we we will we will discuss this with our uk partners um and uh, we we will you know find a solution uh, but i think you're right to point out the word discussions um that mara shevtovich used because the eu does not regard this as a negotiation they believe that neg- the negotiation was done in 2019 that treaty is now in our in effect it's legally binding it's an international treaty um what they are doing now is is discussing ways to make the result of that treaty uh, more acceptable to ordinary people to businesses uh, and to consumers um so the the question is what what will the uk response be to that um but you know we do have a, at least a period of negotiation um and i think you know as 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 we've heard from uh, jeffrey donaldson he's he's already saying that he welcomes the change in tone um and saying that these things were off the table 3 months ago so you can see that he's giving himself a little bit of space to claim uh, either credit or even a victory if it turns out that the proposals from the commission next week do go quite far and and what i'm told is that they will go further than people perhaps have anticipated yeah, and, up, up what, to what, now what does that mean because maroshevchevich has listed a number of areas that he is hearing about from uh, you know people in northern ireland one of them by the way as as, as we just heard isn't the european court of justice he said somebody one person mentioned that to him, but it's trade, SPS, medicines, customs and Northern Irish stakeholders being heard properly by their European counterparts. So all of those would seem to take take up a lot of the grievances that are in place at the moment. What are the possible solutions? Is the da- Does the database issue clear up a lot of the customs checks? Would an agreement be sought on SPS where maybe... Uh, the 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 demand wouldn't be dynamic alignment as before. I mean, what kind of when it says go further, what kind of space are we looking at? Well, uh, unfortunately, it, it's it's kind of it. We're in the realm of of speculation at the moment. But w- what I understand, you know, from from normally very reliable sources, is that they they will go significant uh, a significant distance on SPS. Um, there will be a trusted trader element. I mean, they're what one solution or suggestion that the retail sector in particular the northern ireland retail consortium uh, has been pushing is that you know the the big supermarket chains already have fairly sophisticated it systems where you can trace where exactly a product is in in the supply chain where it came from I mean, there, there's there's a company that I've spoken to that that deal with Marks and Spencers, which, you know, has has a very elaborate uh, IT system that, of course, will cost money, uh, but it it gathers in all of the provenance information when it comes to agri food to to animal products, you know, where that where that meat uh, gets processed into a lasagna or whatever, how that lasagna is then transported to a depot. Um, is it is it a chilled meat? Is it, is it a, a dry storage uh, uh, solution? And then from there, as it moves over to Stranraer to to Larne, 
um, or Kern Ryan rather to Larne and then to, to whatever depot and then to whatever supermarket shelf in Derry or Lisburn or whatever. So, you know, those systems exist. Um, whether or not the EU is prepared to say that supermarkets themselves can handle the traceability because, you know, if, 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 if there's a food scare in the EU, if somebody falls sick, then there is an EU system that makes sure that those goods can be traced instantly and, you know, action can be taken. Um, you know, the, the, the commission monitoring system can set in, can get, get stuck in um, to make sure nobody else gets sick um, and, and that the source of the, of the outbreak is found quickly. And the European Court of Justice obviously makes sure that that system works because everyone signs up to the same rules. The trouble here is that the UK is not signed up to those rules and it's that nexus between GB and Northern Ireland which is still applying those rules where the problem lies. So it's basically, can you give, can you outsource that whole operation to the private sector, in other words, to, to supermarkets uh, or some kind of trusted trader scheme? And I think that's the space in which we'll find uh, that, 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 the, that the Commission has been looking at. Right. But, I mean, I suppose, as we say, it isn't take it or leave it. It will be the beginning of a discussion period, which indicatively, Mara Shevchevic said, will carry on for the engagement and then things might start in about a fortnight's time. There'll be talks for the rest of October, throughout November, up to the end of the year, with a view to having some final solution sorted out by early next year. That's the kind of time frame they're looking at. So... We, we maybe shouldn't expect a big bang next week or would you expect the proposals to be, while you say f- far-reaching, uh, can we expect anything dramatic or would the EU be holding something in reserve for the second-line concession, if you know what I mean? Yeah, well, that that's a good question. I mean, certainly we, we, we need to devote a bit of time to, to the medicines issue because that will be um, a piece of legislation from the EU because they are changing EU law so that medicines flowing from GB to Northern Ireland can undergo the regulatory process in in GB um, that that would be recognised then by the EU because of course medicines that go to Northern Ireland are then I suppose in theory able to circulate you know whether they will or not that's that's the sort of debate um, but that th- this this is new legislation which. I guess the EU is saying, look, that's up to us. You know, that's our; those are our rules. We will decide how to change our rules in order to facilitate the free flow of medicines from um, Great Britain to Northern Ireland. Uh, but that is a very complicated area. So we'll be looking closely to see at how far-reaching that legislation is, and that that of course has to go through. Um, the the sausage machine, uh, not to confuse people with chilled meats again, but the sausage machine in terms of legislation in northern in in the EU, it, it'll be a co decision, uh, piece of legislation with the European Parliament. So that'll have to be run through the European Parliament's committees, uh, but it will be fast tracked as far as I'm aware, uh, so that it can run in parallel with these other pieces of solutions that uh, Maro Shevchevich is going to uh, come forward with. But I, th- I suppose what we'll be looking out for next Wednesday is um, to, to what extent is the EU prepared to accept the long-standing UK argument that the risk of goods entering the single market is minimal? Uh, because I suppose in a sense, you know, whether there is a clear picture or not, depending on what access they've had to the database, the EU could say, well, okay, we've we've we we have a year or 10 months of lived experience of the protocol uh despite all the disruptions and yes we can see that that the risk to the single market is fairly small um but again 
when, when it comes to food products and food safety, the whole EU system is based on zero risk. Um, and that's, again, as we've said before on the podcast, that's underwritten by jurisprudence at the European Court of Justice. And all member states sign up to this and all member states have an absolute stake in making sure that there isn't any risk as a result of some ambiguous situation um, uh, on the Irish Sea where, where stuff might get in and get circulated that isn't safe. Um, so, so, so the question is, how far is the EU prepared to, to shift in the direction of the UK's argument that, look, that the risk is tiny? Right. So I suppose looking ahead to the coming week, that's it really. That's that's the big issue uh, over the over the coming while, how it will be greeted and what it will lead to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's going to be a lot of focus now on, on this this package of measures on Wednesday. He'll, he'll bring it to the uh, to uh, the European Commission College of Commissioners on Wednesday. They, they have to clear it. And then, of course, he'll have to run this uh, past member states. But you know that the as he as he enters the discussions or stroke negotiations whatever you want to call it with the UK at that point you know each step of the way um whatever the UK's response is and and whatever direction these discussions are going those discussions will be i'd say fairly forensically examined by member states uh, through what we call the working party of of Brexit coordinators in in Brussels and they're, they're the officials from the 27 member states and, of course, EU ambassadors as well will be keeping a very close eye on this. And, you know, it should be it, it, it's, it's worth pointing out again that that Paris is going to be a key um, figure in all of this, given how sore they still feel about the AUKUS submarine affair and fisheries. And again, there, there have been quite a few contacts between Brussels and Dublin and Paris on how this is going to be presented. And again, it's going to be presented as the European Commission and the European Union reaching across to the people of Northern Ireland uh, on, you know, for the benefit of the peace process, for the benefit of ordinary people and stakeholders and businesses in Northern Ireland. And again, not that this is some kind of gift for London um, uh, that, that they will take. Uh, and, and, and again, this feeds into the wider post-Brexit relationship between Brussels and London and, of course, London and Paris, which, as, as we've talked about before, is, is not, not the best. I, I will be in Dunkirk on Monday. Um, the, there's a new Irish terminal that's being opened there and Thomas Byrne, Ireland's uh, European Affairs Minister, is going to be there. Uh, so that'll be an opportunity to see uh, the effect up front, up close and personal uh, of the, the the death of the land bridge or the demise of the land bridge and the, uh, the, the the birth of seaborne freight coming from Ireland direct to the continent uh, either via Dunkirk or other other ports so we'll we'll have something to report on that next week all right very interesting okay and what about you Sean what's coming up in the week ahead is the only show in town really that document we're expecting to land next week yeah, you're right. The only show in town next week, and particularly as far as this podcast is concerned, is the British response to uh, whatever uh, Maros Shevchevich proposes, whether they listen to Lord Frost's advice to his team about being disciplined and not necessarily rushing out with responses to everything that comes from Brussels immediately, or whether they will uh, simply not be able to contain their excitement and uh, start uh, firing back immediate responses and top-of-the-head responses. But certainly, uh, from what Lord Frost was saying, 
they will want to get into negotiations. They'll accept that there's going to be a gap there uh, and try and refine it down over the weeks ahead. But you know what? I bet there's going to be some instant analysis and instant reactions. Uh, and we'll be reporting on that next week. Right, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, RTE's London Correspondent in Westminster. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Derry. Thanks for listening.